0: You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. Let me give you an update about the grandkids. Um, and so there's a picture of the, the three kids swimming together. And uh, as you can see, Juju has the energy level of a pack of uh, Golden Retriever puppies and uh, at age three, she's come to the conclusion that for the betterment of humanity, somebody needs to be in charge of Papa, just like somebody needs to be in charge of Robbie. And, uh, and she thinks that it should be her. So she came over the other day, and I came down, and I saw that she was here. I was so happy to see her, uh, see her that I was gonna say, hey, Juju, do you want Papa to get you a snack or something to drink? And all I got out was, was hey, Juju, when she interrupted, she was coloring, and uh, she didn't look up, and she goes, no, hey. <laughs> and you're just like, okay, you got your creative flow going, and and uh, so right there, let's shut this down right now, Papa, no hay, you just, uh, so, and Peach is in uh, first grade, and she's now missing her front teeth, and uh, that's the first day of, uh, of I think it is, because it's not showing up on there, there we go, yeah, oh boy, she is as cute as her Papa, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's just unbelievable how time flies and how she's changing and she's in a gymnastics class and an acting class and she started calling me Poncho and that originated from a game of sorry. I won't go into the details but it was, it was a crazy night and those knucklehead kids. Then little Buckaroo, he loves tools and uh, trucks and balls and his old English sheepdog, uh, Kobe. And, uh, and so, just in case you're not, you're not picking up on what I'm trying to communicate right here, um, these three kids are the apple of my and, and Colleen's eye. We're just crazy about them. I can't think of, of anything in the entire world more valuable to me than these three kiddos. Maybe that's how you feel about your dog. <laughs> uh, If you do feel that same way about your dog, you know, I encourage you to get a grandchild, okay? (laughs) Uh, But Philip Griffin, he saw a sign in his neighborhood in Pennsylvania about a lost dog, and evidently the owner really loved this dog. There's this cash reward, it said on the sign, for finding the dog, and then under the picture of the missing dog, the sign said this, lost dog, mixed breed, he has three legs, part of his right ear and tail are missing, he was accidentally neutered by a fence. <laughs> and I think, why did they put that on the sign, you know? We want to make sure that you can identify my lost dog. And so, it, I want to, the sign ended with this sentence, he answers to the name Lucky. <laughs> God designed us to, to flourish, to thrive, in loving, healthy, and safe families. But humanity, due to our sin, has rebelled against God and has led to all kinds of pain and trauma and dysfunction. But Jesus came to restore us to God and then reconcile us to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. So today's scripture is Jesus telling this absolutely fascinating little story about a father who was crazy in love about his two sons. And in this scripture, in this little story, we learn about God, we learn about ourselves, we learn about how to be in God's family, and we learn some things about being a better parent. Sometimes we feel like Lucky the Dog, metaphorically speaking, huh? That that we're limping through life with three legs, part of our ears missing, part of our tails missing, and we had a very unfortunate experience with offense once upon a time. But Jesus shows us that there is healing for our hurts. Jesus' story reminds us that God loves us infinitely more than I love Peach, Juju, and Buck. This story teaches us that there's a way to be restored to God's family when we're estranged and a way to be reconciled with one another that God has made a way by which dysfunctional families can be healed and transformed into life-giving families. So let's dig into this great story. Look in your Bibles, uh, Luke chapter uh, 15, starting at verses 11 and 12. There was a man, he had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. According to Jewish law, the eldest son would receive twice as much inheritance as the other kids, so if you had two sons, that meant that the younger son would get one-third of the estate. It's interesting that in the Greek here, the word property, it's the only place in the New Testament uses this particular Greek word, ousia and ousia means estate or property or substance. And it's showing that the younger son loved his father's stuff, his usia, more than he loved his father. And since an inheritance was only given upon the death of the father, in essence, the younger son was saying, Dad, I wish you were dead so I can have your usia, so I can have your wealth, your property, your substance. To Jesus' original hearers, this would have been scandalous. Biblical historians tell us that any son who asked for his inheritance while his father was living would have been driven out of the family and disinherited. The scandal deepens when the father humbly acquiesced to his son's disrespectful request to uh, liquidate uh, land and property that had been in the family for years, which was the the, the way land was, uh, was kept back in Jesus' day, and then to give it to his rebellious son. According to the Roman law of uh, patria potestas, which literally means the power of the father, the paterfamilias, the leader of the family, the father had legal authority over his children much more extensive than we do in our culture today. For an offense like the younger son asking for his inheritance, the penalty could have been death. When I, when I think of the word paterfamilias, have you ever watched the movie, Oh Oh, uh, oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And there's uh, George Clooney in that scene where he goes, I am the paterfamilias. And no George Holly Hunter was the paterfamilias if you've ever watched that movie. But anyway, I, I digress, I'm sorry. Um, Robbie's rubbing off on me. <laughs> Verse 13. Not long after that we really do love you Robbie. Hey Robbie, eyes up here. I- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Uh, in about 25 minutes he's going to come up and just strangle me. And y'all y'all be like, "Yeah, he deserved it. He really did." It- that wasn't inappropriate. <laughs> Verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had. He set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. So flush with cash, the younger son goes to a far country. And, and the choice of that word would have caught Jesus' uh, listeners' attention also because it's a, it's a very special Greek word, kora, which means separate or separate from. Literally, Korah was a great, uh, open, empty space, a place without borders and without definition. To Plato, the the Greek philosopher, Korah was the place of non-being and non-visibility. In other words, the younger son left the identity, the security, the love, the meaning of his father's house seeking life and pleasure in a place of emptiness. Isn't that the very meaning of addiction? We seek relief from anxiety, we seek uh, pleasure for our pain, and we try to find ourselves in places of emptiness, places of non-being. And there he squandered his wealth. That word squandered is where we get the word prodigal. We call this the prodigal son story. Prodigal literally means to spend foolishly, lavishly, and wastefully. The younger son picked up all the bills for his newfound friends. They were more than happy to eat the prime rib, drink the champagne that his dad's money was was paying for. But eventually and inevitably, the younger son's American Express Centurion card maxed out and the bills came due as they always do. Look down at verse 14. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country. Things went from bad to worse, and he began to be in need. Verse 15. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that Korah, of that empty place, who sent him out to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him even anything to eat. Isn't this the very definition of the far country emptiness, poverty, suffering, loneliness, shame? Plato was correct, Korah is the place of non-being. The foolish younger son thought he was missing out when he went to Korah, to the empty place. And the empty place he went to, assuming he was missing out on the real fun, ended up sucking dry his bank account, his health, and his very soul. In the Korah far country, the place of non-visibility to Plato, the younger brother became a nobody. A pig boy. Look at verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set back, set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So here the story pivots. The younger son Jesus tells us, came to his senses. The word repentance literally means a change of mind. The rosy tinted glasses which envied the far country as the place of all the real fun, now there had a reality check as he was among the pigs that life, real life, abundant life, was found with his father in his father's house. That the place of identity and security and meaning and love and health and abundance and joy were not in the empty Korah of the far country nor in the oozia of wealth and property, but with his loving Father. The younger son shows us that a change of mind will lead to a change of direction in life. So in short, what we're reading and Jesus is saying is the younger son repents and he returns to his father. Look down at verse 20. So he got up. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to party. They began to celebrate. This malnourished, impoverished, sick, abused, broken and humbled son returns to his father where the rebel finds not condemnation. He finds compassion. The son who wished his father was dead was embraced with open arms and celebrated. And now the story takes another surprising turn. The elder brother comes home. It's been a hot day out in his father's fields. He's had a long, hard day's work farming, and he sees his spoiled, immature, jerk of a little brother back home, and it does not go over well with him. Look at verse 25. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we have to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Amazing, powerful story. The elder brother's ticked off. He's always done the right thing, he's always worked hard for his father. Now, his younger brother, whose selfishness has cost the family estate dearly, is being feeded in a banquet. And this is beyond not fair, this is not acceptable. This is downright stupid business and family practice. And by the way, who's paying for this party? My inheritance is paying for this party. This short family story, it's so multi-layered and absolutely fascinating. It's important to note that at the core, the older brother looked at his father the same way the younger brother did. Let me explain. They both valued the father's wealth more than they valued the father. They just expressed it in opposite ways, which is in keeping with family systems theory. In family systems theory, children seek to bring balance to the family. So if one sibling is an overachieving, serious, perfectionist child, another child may be the opposite, may be careless, underachieving, and rebellious. They both are expressing in opposite ways the underlying dysfunction of a family that would be based on performance rather than love. So what does this stunning little story teach us about God? The Father in the story is a symbol for our Heavenly Father, and God gave humanity the immense wealth of this incredible planet to take care of for Him. Instead, we sinned and we rebelled against God and have brought great ruin to our lives and to this planet. We have wanted God to be dead So we'd be free to do whatever we want just to find out that apart from our Heavenly Father, we live in emptiness and brokenness like the younger son living among the pigs. We become like Julian Barnes, the atheist novelist who wrote, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Hmm. We can learn so much about God in this parable, but let me quickly highlight just three things about God. The first one is this, the absolute essential nature of God for our existence. The absolute essential nature of God by which our existence is contingent. In Acts 17, 28, the Apostle Paul wrote, in God we live and we move and we have our being. In other words, there is no life, there is no earth, there is no galaxy, there is no universe apart from God, because God created it and God sustains it. He is king of the universe. So how, for instance, answer this question, how does the earth maintain its rotation and orbit? And if you answer via the stronger and and weaker gravitational forces, good for you, good for you. But let me ask a follow-up question. What are the stronger and weaker gravitational forces? How do you explain them? Where did they come from? And that brings us back, those kinds of core questions bring us back to there is an eternal, um, matchlessly intelligent, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God who holds the universe together. In other words, we do not exist apart from God. All there is apart from God is Korah. Emptiness. And non-being because even the our identity is being made in God's image is gone if there is no God so like the younger brother we can wish that the father was dead and we can pretend like he's dead but our very lives and our future hope are tied to the father who is in heaven there is no life without God that's the essential nature of God for our existence Isaiah 40, verses 25 and 26 says this, To whom then will you compare me, says the Lord. Lift up your eyes and look at all the stars. Who created these? God brings the billions of stars out and calls them all by name. Wow. So the absolute essential nature of God for our existence. But we also learn about God's grace. The younger son was rebellious, he was foolish, he was selfish, immature, uh, wasteful, he was hurtful, you know, uh, he, he needed a good talking to. But on the younger son's worst day, when he woke up among the pigs, starving to death, and he came home, what did he find? He found love, acceptance, and forgiveness from his father. That's why Timothy Keller calls us, and he wrote a book about it, a great book, called The Prodigal God Rather Than The Prodigal Son. God is wasteful and extravagant and lavish in his grace toward us sinful human beings have made a mess of things. That's what we've been singing about this morning. On remembering the, the Jews' worst day, With the scorched earth devastation and the Babylonian conquest of Jerusalem, Jeremiah the prophet, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote this in Lamentations 3. When I remember my affliction and my wandering, my soul is downcast within me. Yet I bring this to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Apostle Paul in Romans 5 reiterates the vastness of God's grace. Where sin abounds, grace abounds even greater. And then three chapters later in chapter 8, it says, What can separate us from God's love? It says, No, in all these things we are hooper which which is overwhelmingly victorious through Jesus Christ our Lord. God's grace heals rather than annihilates us on our worst day. God's amazing grace. A third thing we learn about God is his humility. The father in the story was insulted by the younger son, and in Middle Eastern culture, bringing such shame to the father was grounds to be cast out of the family. Then the older son insulted the father by not taking up his offer to come into the party. Yet the father didn't insist on his rights as the pater paterfamilias, the patriarch of the family, but he humbly interacted with his sons, even though they loved his money more than they loved him. That's humility. Remember, Philippians tells us that Jesus humbled himself to the point of going to the cross. If God wasn't humble, he would have destroyed and annihilated humanity for our rebellion ages ago but he hasn't because of his humility and his grace. Some of us can relate to the rule-breaking younger son. Some of us hate rules. We love being the bad boy or being with the bad boy. Then some of us can relate to being the rule-keeping older son. We take pride in the respect and the wealth which comes from high achievement. The younger son, Judges the older son as a heartless conservative, while the older son judges the younger son as an ignorant progressive. In other words, Jesus' story is equally offensive and equally life-giving, redemptive to both younger sons and older brothers. It's level ground at the foot of the cross. Then some of us can relate to being both the rule-breaker and the rule-keeper, Some of us privately and secretly break the rules by showing up Monday morning as a respectable pillar of our community. But whether as a younger rule breaker or an elder rule keeper, we need to come to our senses and realize the incomparable blessing, not of the Father's great wealth, but the eternal blessing that you are with me and everything I have is yours. That's worth meditating on. What is more valuable than all the vast mineral wealth on this incredible planet, all the uranium and coal and gold and and trace minerals needed for semiconductors and advanced batteries? What's more valuable than all that? The one who created and owns all of that, our Heavenly Father, you are mine, and everything I have is yours, is the place of spiritual riches. The story then teaches how to be in right relationship with the father. The younger son wanted to earn his way back into the family. Did you notice that he was saying, hire me as a worker on your estate and I'll pay you back what I took away from the family. But the father didn't even listen to his son's business proposal. He gave him a signet ring signifying the son could now transact family business in the father's name. In other words, the story makes it clear that we don't earn our way back into God's family through good works. We receive a gift and our identity and our place in God's family as beloved children by God's good grace. By a gift of love we do not deserve and we cannot earn. We receive God's love by grace through faith. Finally, in conclusion, there's important parenting lessons we can learn from this story. One of the things we see in this story is that the father was compassionate, but he wasn't codependent. He didn't try to persuade his son to stay home. He didn't power up and insist the younger son listen to him because he knew better, even though he did know better. He didn't get angry with the older son when he was being a self-righteous, judgmental, unforgiving uh, brother toward, his young, toward the younger son. And the father allowed the younger son to learn by experience the consequences of his actions, even though it came at a great cost to the father. And that's the opposite of codependence. The father wasn't a helicopter parent. He realized that for the younger son to mature, he had to come to his senses. He had to come to himself. The father had to allow his son's autonomy so they would come to their senses and freely return to his house. A shocking lesson I learned early in my message is that Colleen has a mind of her own. <laughs> I know, can you believe the unmitigated gall of that woman? <laughs> Not to see the hoarse sense of, you know, as a 22-year-old when we were married, my incredible wisdom and uh, incredibly well thought out decisions. You know, uh, I was like Robbie and... Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. No, no, no. That was, that was, we'll talk about that later. Actually, I thank God so much for, uh, for Colleen. And I feel about Colleen like uh, Jack Nicholson in, uh, um, with Helen Hunt in uh, As Good As It Gets. You make me want to be a better man. Yeah, I just dug myself out of a hole right there. <laughs> So what's my point? Which you're like, what is he talking about right now? And, uh, but my point is this. In relationships, we have to balance autonomy with connection. To seek interdependence rather than estrangement or enmeshment. Um, the father respected his son's autonomy because it is in the place of free will that true love can be chosen. And that's what the father wants. The father wanted his sons to love him, not for his wealth, but love him because they had chosen to love him. And so he had to give them freedom so they could make that decision. But it isn't the easy path as a parent, is it? Doesn't being a parent teach us that we'll cripple our children if we continually stand between their actions and the consequences didn't we grow up, at least myself, when, when like the younger son, come to our senses due to the dire consequences of foolish decisions? We also learn that families who relate to one another on the basis of money will struggle. This story makes that clear. The father in Jesus' story was wealthy and his two sons valued his money more than they valued him. And valuing money more than people in relationships is a recipe for a dysfunctional, unhappy family. When we value Uziah stuff, we end up in Korah, with emptiness. We also learn not to be surprised in this story that our children have a sin nature. My children didn't inherit their sin nature from mean Aunt Betsy or, or selfish uh, Grandpa Frank. Unfortunately, they inherited it from me, as, as you've seen this morning quite a bit. And the Bible teaches that I inherited it from Adam, and so did you. That's why our kids, why us, need the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the very essence of our Christian faith that when we change our minds, when we go back to our Heavenly Father, He restores us by His lavish grace. Our kids, like us, on our worst day, desperately need the lavish extravagant wasteful grace of God so in conclusion let me ask us this where are you in this story God offers the spiritual feast of the bread and the wine at the Lord's table to us this morning do we take the father and his table his house his presence for granted or do we humbly in faith give thanks and worship to our Heavenly Father Reveling in the identity and the security and the spiritual riches and the joy found in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. Whether you are the rule-breaking, immoral younger son or the rule-keeping, self-righteous older brother, this morning let's all come back to the Father's house and come freely to the Father's table of grace. When I was in college, I went through a prodigal son phase. And I just knew I was missing out on all the fun I'd heard about in the far country. But after months of uh, learning hard lessons, uh, one evening my dad drove down to Seattle and took me out to dinner and then asked me a personal and serious question and I answered honestly and when I did, I saw disappointment and sadness in his eyes, but I saw something else. I saw love and it wrecked me. My dad dropped me off back on campus, and I went for a long walk, hours, by myself in the middle of the night with a hurting and a lonely heart. And it was the beginning of coming back to my father's house. And I encourage you this morning, if your child is in their prodigal phase, don't give up on them. Keep loving them and praying for them, for what seems impossible to us is possible with God's amazing grace.